0: Good morning. A uh, little bit of housekeeping. On uh, on behalf of Southbrook leadership, there's a matter that uh, to be addressed. Uh, two weeks ago tomorrow, I was in my office on a Monday morning, and my father Charlie, and your friend, lead pastor, came in, and he asked me to drive him to the hospital. He didn't know what he was experiencing beyond symptoms of lightheadedness and elevated heart rate, shortness of breath. However, after clean EKG test and CAT scan, he seems to have the condition tachycardia, generally uh, irregular heart rhythms, and uh, that was the symptoms he was experiencing. Beyond significant fatigue, he's doing very well. He's taking time off to recover and sort through the matter. His phone's off. He's unreachable. However, he wants you all to know he would very much appreciate your prayers in this time off. Uh, praying is the most you can do to offer your support to Charlie and Sherry at this time. Concerning Southbrook broadly, until then, um, through that, uh, thanks to Sean Case, our executive pastor, as well as Kathy Glista, Pete Creamer, leaders of our pastoral preaching team, Sunday gatherings will proceed as expectation and excellence, and uh, along with their subsequent ministries. Um, Personally, it is most appropriate for me to say um this, this will be the first preaching assignment Charlie has missed in a 38-year preaching career of over 4,000 sermons. And, <clears throat> and the other night he expressed to me how sad he is to miss his appointment with you to talk about the gospel with his dear friends. So someone with that kind of steadfast love, you can be assured will be returning very, very soon. Okay? Let's pray together for him. Lord, the imagery I keep having is light. Your light that is warm like a beach. Heals and uh, and so we pray towards that imagery on our friend, our father, our pastor, and that he feels that all these prayers of the saints together. And we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, moving to our text, if you um, if you can think to this Thanksgiving morning. Before the feast comes, you have you have a scent in the air. You have an aroma, don't you? And so if you have your, uh, figuratively, your nose to the air of Romans at this point, you begin to pick up a scent. You're very keen to it. It's the aroma of the gospel that is starting to perfume the air. Chapter 1 says Gentiles, anyone that's not ethnically Jewish, us, most of us, I think, We're unrighteous by birth, unclean, unfit to be the people of God. In chapter 2, what we've worked through the last couple weeks and where we're at today, it says the righteous lot of humanity, the most pure lot of humanity, well, they've transgressed the covenant. Their attempts at righteousness post-Easter only but condemns them all the more. So what do we do? Quite the predicament. The pagan liberationists, us, we're on the outside looking in. The Bible-thumping devotees, the, the pious lot, they stand condemned. So something must happen. Something has to happen to history, in history, and for history. There must be an intervention of corporate history, all the years of it, but there has to be an intervention of your local history in your life as well. Should anyone stand to be justified in the courts of God? Do you start to pick up a scent there? If I can breathe through my snot, my tears. I, can, I could smell it, trust me. Um, it's there. It's the, it's, it's the aroma of the feast of the gospel being prepared. It's perfuming the worldview of history that Paul offers Through his chronicle of history in Romans. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing anyone can do. Something vicarious, something substitutionary has to happen. And this is the gospel being prepared in Paul's very careful language, very arduous language. We're just moving the ball down the field. This is the running game of Romans. There's nothing sexy here. We're just moving the ball down the field. At the end of chapter 3, we'll feast. Will feast. So the text we're looking at today is Romans two seventeen, and um, this is a very self introspective passage. It really really requires us to look into ourselves. The law is this very abstract thing, you know, Jewish law, and it's actually very incisive into our lives, and it actually has a very um, practical. poignancy to to anthropology and making sense of the human condition, as we'll see. So uh, I'm going to give some exposition through this, just so we have some clear understanding of where Paul's mind's at, and then we're going to pull out one word. There's one word we're going to pull out. So chapter 2, 17, you call yourself a Jew, and you rely on the law, and you boast of your relationship to God. It's the ethnic Jews, verse 17, the sovereignly elected people of God in the Old Testament, through whom Gentiles... Anyone who is not Jewish of race has been grafted in alongside of and with. Verse 18, and you know of his will, and you approve of superior things because you receive instruction from the law. That is Judaism. Judaism is like, uh, when we look back on it from where we are in, in America and the Western modern world, it's not one thing. Judaism is a lot of things. It's like saying, what's, what's Americanism? Well, there's a lot of different interpretations of what Americanism, same as Judaism. It's not just one thing. What Paul is speaking towards is the religion of the Mosaic Law, particularly the law given at Mount Sinai to Moses in the book of Exodus. Verse 19, You are a, you, if you are convinced that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those in darkness, God's purpose in constituting a nation of Israel by means of the law was to mediate his presence into the world. Israel was the vessel, the steward, which would bring about Saving the world. Verse 20, you're an educator of the senseless, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the essential features of knowledge and of the truth. Essential features of knowledge and of the truth. Paul means the law. This is very important. The law is the prefiguration of the Christ. It is his very word of which he gave in person to Moses on Sinai and through which he has called Israel and is saving the world. Verses 21 through 24. Therefore, you who teach someone else, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who tell others not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by transgressing the law. For it is written, the name of God is being blasphemed among you. The Gentiles among the Gentiles, among you. This is the hypocrisy. The, Hypocrisy is the inevitability of the boasting that Paul is talking about in this circumstance. It's very circumstantial, what he's talking about with with hypocrisy in the Jews. And it's come about because their covenantal unfaithfulness. Verse 25, for circumcision has its value if you practice the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcised man obeys the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And the physically uncircumcised man, by keeping the law, will judge you to be the transgressor of the law, even though you have the letter in circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision something that is outward in the flesh. Verses 25 to 28. This is a literal boundary marker, circumcision, that Paul is talking about. All to illustrate his next point. Verse 29. But someone who is a real Jew is one inwardly circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. This person's praise is not from people, but from God, central to Paul's theology and coherent with the teachings of Jesus, internal transformation by the spirit, not external modification by one's will or religion or cultural precedent. So a surface moral reading, if you just read this and you say, so what do we learn here, folks? Don't be a hypocrite. And we can just, you know, we could, well, there, that's that. But I'd be out of the job for that, you see. Now, this is the very word of God. There, there is something more there. There's something so much more. You have to see beyond a pure, purely moral reading of Scripture every time you come to the Scriptures. And so to do this, you need two things. Two things to see beyond a purely moral reading list of legalistic do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do that. You need two things. The first thing is you need a theology that is born out of need. You need something that, that tells you something about your nature, that addresses your problem right now, that addresses your condition right now. You need a theology that's practical, an interpretation that's practical. So that's number one. You need a theology born out of need. Number two, you need a theology that brings you to your knees. You need a theology that tells you something about the nature of God and how he relates to you. This is worshipful. So you need something practical from the text and something worshipful from the text. The way you do that is we have to find the gospel in the text. The gospel's there. The scent, it's there. And we have to go smelling for it. We have to go looking for it. And the way we're going to do this is through through three little steps that we're going to take. The problem. There's a problem with humanity. If you haven't noticed, there's a problem. A metaphor for that problem. We'll characterize that problem in a metaphor. But number three, uh, this, this metaphor directs us into our new reality. So number one, the problem in our passage, Paul characterizes the inauthentic Jew. Uh, this Jew is animated. If, if you've seen, he's animated by an action. He does something, and then there are attributes to that action and outcome. The volume of the passage is characterized by the circumstantial attributes, which are hypocrisy. But the action, the thing that you, the the the, the, the infraction, I should say. The revealing part of the Jew's character is, in verse 17 and 23, it's the boasting. In Paul's view, a real Jew has no need to boast. That is, someone who understands their totally unmerited gifting doesn't boast, because who boasts in a gift that's totally unmerited? They didn't, they didn't achieve, they didn't earn. If someone said to you, think of this, someone said to you, how much debt do you have? Um credit cards, medical, college, doesn't matter. How much debt do you have? I'll pay it. And they pay it. You would you would feel so many things. You would you would you would you might you might even feel ashamed. You'd be humbled certainly. But you would feel no need to be arrogant about it. There would be no there would you wouldn't go telling people <laughs> that this is this was my condition and this is what happened. And so you have to see we there's an essence, there's something deeper beyond one side of, of boasting. There's an essence to it. Very few people in, in our day-to-day lives, I mean, we, come, we encounter some, but very few are arrogant. It's just not well-adjusted adults aren't arrogant people. It doesn't work in society. You don't really, You don't really get ahead. But we all boast. There's all something, a part of us, that we don't boast in an abundance of what we have. We boast from an impoverished heart. Boasting is an attempt to compensate for what we lack, what we fear, our insecurities, what we've never had. On another side of the spectrum of boasting, humble people boast. Boasting is so instinctual to the human experience. Boasting is nearly primal. We're so inherently devoted to the idea of the practice of boasting. Uh, Novelist David Foster Wallace famously said, it's insidious. It's unconscious. It's a default setting that's eating us alive. But you think, the more and more you think into boasting, um, as I have this week, it's very practical. It's very psychologically practical boasting. Boasting covers us over and on. It covers us socially. It covers us emotionally. It covers us relationally. Um, Most of you. I, I'm like you. Most of you, you don't have the you don't have the luxury to hide. You don't have the luxury to withdraw all the time. You can't say in February on a Monday, I'm just not feeling it. Seasonal depression is getting the best of me. I'm not going into work today. That doesn't that doesn't that doesn't work. It might actually work with you know, I suppose my generation. You can you can do that. <laughs> um, the older generations, you couldn't do that. So, not every illustration's perfect, guys. It's not. But so what? So what do you have to do? You have to compensate. You have to cover that up. You have to compensate it with with personas, with tasks, with busyness, with moral piety, with uh, social, political um, kind of righteousness. We have a primal need to be covered up. Whether you believe in a doctrine of sin or not, no doubt you, like me, have spent so much time, energy, money, worry, work to cover up something undesirable about yourself. It's a protective instinct, but here's actually the bad news. That's not the bad news. Here's the bad news. And I didn't think of this until just, just before I walked out here. Here's the bad news. We're all so well-intentioned. Our motives aren't impure. We're doing the best we can. And the unfortunate part, the unfair part, is how life will require you to boast. Life will require you to cover yourself up. Life will, it will force your job, your relationships, something has or will force you to to campaign yourself. Um, If you didn't already know it, the greatest television show of all time is The West Wing, uh, starring uh, Charlie Sheen and Allison Janning. Um, Now you know. So uh, it's an older show, um, but everything you need to know about, if you're in leadership at all, everything you need to know about leadership is found in the seven seasons of President Josiah Bartlett. Save the purchase of your next leadership book. Just get HBO Max, um, or whatever it's called, and watch The West Wing. I have been, uh, really for about six years now, just been watching it on a cycle, from crying babies to sermons that keep me up at night. Uh, the West Wing is its what I go to, and I've just been watching it over and over. But uh, about a month ago, I was watching the sixth season, and uh, the, the upright and noble presidential hopeful to come after Josiah Bartlett is Matt DeSantos. And he's at an existential crossroads in his uh, uh, democratic campaign, which is based wholly on education reform. That's, that's his very heart is just to reform education for the impoverished kids. And that's all he wants to talk about. He doesn't talk about anything else. He just wants to talk about education reform, and how we can get more money to teachers, and how we can support teachers, and how we can help students. But he's suffering in the polls to very lackluster competition. And so his campaign manager, former deputy chief of staff, Josh Lyman, if you've seen the show, love Josh, he confronts him, and he demands he drop the Too Good for Politicism Act and start throwing real political punches namely through petty uh, political campaign ads. He doesn't, by the way, because the show is fiction, and um, there's a joke somewhere in there. You, you make it. But the point is, there, there's, it doesn't matter how virtuous you are. Still, it will, life will demand unconsciously that you start campaigning yourself, that you start some kind of self-promotion. At some point in your career, your relationships, your identity, whatever it is, will demand that you campaign to survive not just get ahead but to survive this is something um, that that has come out of a real disciplining this summer for me and the Lord has impressed upon me and I, I realized like this there was some kind of burden I was carrying and it was this need to to, to camp like I, the feeling of I was on the defense stand all the time you, you feel like there's a there's a fictional they out there in your life they. You don't know who they are, but they're there. And they're telling you, well, you really don't, you know, it's really kind of you know, they're just they're saying you don't even know what they're saying. They're just going, they're just saying things in your ear, and they are there. And you have to campaign against they. Perhaps you had an overbearing mother growing up. It was hard on you. And if you're really honest with yourself, despite how much you love your children, the reason that their well-being consumes your life is you're proving something to her, proving something to yourself, that you are adequate, that you are worthy. Or perhaps you're the firstborn sibling. Mm-hmm. You've always done the right thing. You got good grades. You were never too indulgent or impulsive. You do firstborn sibling things like you have a good interest rate in your mortgage. <laughs> you've, always a, you've always been a Christian, but you're really not sure why. You've always been a morally reasonable person. You're not self-righteous at all. There's just not that much that needs to be transformed. But it's all so much work. It's all so much pressure, being the one that everyone depends upon. You feel like you're about to crack because you know you're not all right. You just have some kind of covering that makes you seem all right. Everyone boasts. Everyone's covering up something, even the most humble of us. So boasting's the problem. It's a covering. It's like a garment that we wear. It's like clothing that everyone wears to feel worthy. And that's number two, our metaphor. Our boasting, metaphorically, it's like a garment. It's like clothes. Everyone wears clothes. Some of us wear similar clothes. Others of us wear different clothes. I wear this jacket six days a week. Six days a week I wear this jacket. I've been wearing it for two years six days a week because I'm just terribly uncomfortable around people. And something about this jacket makes me feel comfortable, so I wear it all the time. I wasn't going to wear it today. I was trying not to wear it today. And I even wore layers underneath so I wouldn't be cold, and I, I, here I am with the jacket. So what does that say about me? Some therapist out there is going to email me. Here are my hours. So for objective reasons or for subjective reasons, such as my coat, the clothes we wear say quite a lot about us. We all wear clothes, unless you're into some really weird stuff and, you know... Um, Think back to what Pete said, Genesis 3. What's the first thing that Adam and Eve do? Instinct. Instinct takes over. They cover up. But they cover up, and here's the catch, they cover up with something provided by the Lord, something of the Lord's creation. The fig tree covering up is not an isolated narrative event. It is the prefiguration of the law that the Lord would give to his chosen people, Israel. Israel's law given by the Lord to Moses was the means by which the Lord constituted a new people to bring them to himself, and then to mediate his righteousness, his presence, into the sin reality world. And so the Lord accomplishes this through ritual acts of atonement. The Hebrew word for atonement is kippur. It's in Arabic. It comes from Arabic, actually, and it, it, uh, it means to cover up. Atonement means to cover up. Nothing fancy there. Cover over. It is littered all throughout the Torah, Israel's law. You can find it in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all your favorite books of the Bible, I'm sure. Perhaps you've heard of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Mosaic law, it's it's so far beyond um, the way our our Western eyes see it. It's not a book of do's and don'ts. Yes, there are commands in there. It's written in, in, in command language, but It is not a list of religious do's and don'ts. The purpose of the law is robust in its dynamic and function. Metaphorically, Israel's law is clothing provided by the Lord. Hence, the Jews boast in the law in Paul's passage, because no one knew the law like Paul. Blameless. (laughs) I shared an anecdote in Bible study a couple weeks ago of a rabbi who was once asked for a definition of dignity, and he thought for a moment, and he said, never letting anyone be embarrassed in your presence. So the Lord, full of love and a desire to give good gifts, would not let Israel be embarrassed in his presence. So he gave them, metaphorically, clothing. Something to cover up with Leviticus sixteen thirty. From this, on this day Yom Kippur, that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you; you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. And the law is a blessing. Psalm thirty two one: How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered over. And so many prophecies read: "See," says the Lord to his prophet Zechariah, "I have taken away your sins, and I will." Put a rich garment on you. So, there's the problem. But we have a metaphor for the problem. How does this become your new reality? Verse 29, central to Paul, as I said. The true Jew, the authentic person of God, has a mark of God that only God can make. It is of the heart, internal transformation. That is life by the Holy Spirit, which determines one's outward development. Verse 29 goes on to show that, you really, you just look back to 29, you see it. He uses the word praise, a more positive form of, of boasting Um There isn't inherently, there's not necessarily anything wrong with a covering. A coverings come from God. There's nothing nothing simply wrong with the what we do inherently. It's a misguided origin. In fact, when we think about it, our coverings have kept us alive up to this point in life. It is the very thing that has kept all of us from being crushed from our insecurities and their hopelessness, but it's eating us alive. Uh, I don't know how life jackets are made now, but um, before, uh, in a in a prior decade, this illustration would have been great. I'll still use it. Life jackets used to be made out of a substance that if they stayed submerged in water for over 10 hours, they would solidify and And you would sink. They would drown you. And so there came a point where you would have to take the life jacket off. The very thing that keeps you alive It's drowning you. The very thing that constitutes a people group, Israel, the law, what does it do? Condemns them. The very thing that kept them alive, it condemns them. Now, but don't jump ahead too quick. So what do we do? So we take it all off. So no more coverings. No more coverings. Well, that, that's renunciation theology that comes from overly moralized readings of the Scripture. Don't do this. Do that. Don't do that. The Lord would never do that. The Lord has never done that. The Lord has said, I will give you a, gov- a covering. Just as he did with Israel, he will do with us. So what we need, it's the same thing Israel needed. It's a spirit kind of covering, the right kind of garment. One of the old... Uh, evangelical preacher words for the work of the Holy Spirit. It's great. It's, um, it says the Holy Spirit champions us. The Holy Spirit champions us. That's, that's one of his primary jobs, to champion you. Your old garment, you campaign in. Your new garment, the Holy Spirit champions you. And this is how we walk into our new reality, number three, and I'll, and I'll be very very brief with this, with this point because there's a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of abstracts to think about here that we've gone through. Your new reality. Jesus had a tendency, if you hadn't noticed thus far in your life, to say a lot of uncomfortable things that are hard to make sense of. If you, um, if you read the Gospels long enough, you come across something like John uh, 6 where his disciples go, Jesus, this is a hard saying. I'm not sure we can make sense of much of this one. We don't have the hermeneutical tools to <laughs> to deal with this. Do you know why that is? It's because they didn't have the fullness of the gospel yet, like you do. And there are many hard sayings of Jesus that we have to have gospel hindsight. We have to take what we a post crossed reality and read it back and to see the fullness of the gospel and where it came from, what problems it addresses, and where we are now with it. So I want to read Matthew twenty two. It'll be on the side screens to follow along. Matthew 22 is a parable of Jesus. He says Jesus, uh, Matthew says Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to summon those who had been invited to the banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, Tell those who have been invited, look, the feast I have prepared is ready for you. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But they were indifferent and they went away, one to his farm, another to his business, and the rest seized the slaves and insolently mistreated them and killed them. And the king was furious. He sent his soldiers and they they put those murderers to death and they set their city on fire. And then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready. But the ones who had been invited are not worthy, so go into the main streets, invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet." And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all they had found, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see, he saw in the wedding guests a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without your wedding clothes? But he had nothing to say. And the king said to his attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, and few are chosen. In my Matthewan library, I, I I was left wanting in, in studying for that passage. I, I, went, I went through about half a dozen or so sources for Matthew 22, and I and there was just there was a, the brevity of the, the commentators was consistent throughout all of these sources. So I'm thinking, and I thought, why, you know, what, why is why there's you have a lot of space devoted here to these and not this this passage, and I thought if you went into a jeweler's shop and you saw a diamond that was unlike any diamond you had ever seen. It was larger than any diamond you have ever seen. It was more brilliant than any diamond you had ever seen. There's no description by that diamond. There's, there's only beholding of that diamond. Isaiah 61. If you're at all grieve, if you're at all mourning, read Isaiah 61. It's the most what's encur- one of the most encouraging prophecies you'll ever find. Isaiah 61, beyond all that, it says this. Only the Messiah can bring the garment that you need. Only the Messiah can provide the garment. So think again. Close your eyes if you have to. If you went into a jeweler and before you was the most brilliant, largest diamond you've ever seen, greater than any diamond you ever knew possible to exist. There would be no description because there are no words. Only beholding. But do you know what would be by that diamond? There would be a price. There would be a price. John 19. The only thing comparable to the magnitude of the brilliance of a beauty is the price. That's the only thing you can compare it to. So look at John 19, 23 through 24. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took off his clothes and they made four shares, one for each soldier, and a tunic remained. Now the tunic was seamless, woven from top to bottom as a single piece. So the soldiers said to one another, let's not tear it, but throw dice to see who will get it. And this took place to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my garments among them and my clothing. They threw dice. And so the soldiers did these things. Do you, see, do, you see, do you see the gospel there? Do you see it? We came from a theology that was built out of need, but now where are we with it? Where are we? One that brings us to our knees. Jesus took off his garment so that you could wear it. There is no greater love than this, than the one who would give such vicarious love, such a vicarious act of a garment to you and to me. That's how we get into the wedding feast. A lot of bible things here. <laughs> For the students here. The world tells you this. You have two options. The world tells you this. You are worthy, but you have to prove it to be loved. The gospel tells you this. What have we learned? Jesus says, I'll make you worthy. And there's nothing you have to do to prove to be loved. I have given you a new garment. We're going, to, we're going to practice this now. This is imagery. I've given you imagery today. We're going to practice this imagery now and pray through imagery. It's the most effective way to pray is praying through imagery. And so during communion, as we come to the Lord's Supper, if you are ready to take of the supper, there's a verse that will be on the side screens. Luke 8, 44 through 45. And coming up behind him, she touched the fringe of his cloak and Jesus said, Who touched me? Because this is how we begin to smell the aroma of the gospel. We find our need, and we see something that we must worship. And you reach out and access his grace, touch of his cloak. Do you know what will happen? He'll want to get to know you. Who are you? That's what he'll want. That's all you have to do. This is the gospel. And we're moving the ball down the field, okay? To chapter three. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for... uh, even in your great aroma there are still riches that we can behold and so as we take of these symbols of your body and blood meet us here as we reach out for your as we reach out for your garment that you will impute your righteousness upon us and so that we may have greater faith and greater encouragement that that we can sit at your wedding banquet one day We thank you for this hour and uh, bless our week going forward. In Jesus' name, the church says, amen.